Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today, this is episode number two, as we sit down with Amanda Sullivan. Two episodes, Amanda. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. You're laughing. Uh, we've got the donuts going down. Now we've got some energy drinks going in. So, and then episode number one, we left off with that impactful moment in life where you come through and realize like the tunnel run, the finish and the running and how that all came full circle and just being alive and that fire in your belly and that candle that, you know, is being lit and being, you know, started to really grow and go. And that leads us to kind of catch up here. We'll do kind of a little bit of a fast forward. You get involved in these Spartan races. You do... Do we find how many you've done? Yes. So from August of 2012 to, let's say, uh, 2016, right? Because that's right before your mom gets sick in mm -hmm. 2016. How many Spartans did you complete? So this is actually, I'm just going to do until now my until count. Until now, which is fine. Okay. <laughs> I'm not very good at math, That's guys. okay. So since my first race in September of 2012, the Tunnel to Towers race, which for those who didn't listen to episode one... I finished dead last out of 30,000 people, but I felt like I had won Long an Olympic race. gold medal. Yeah. Um, and that was my first race on forearm crutches. But since then, I have completed over five dozen 5K races, three dozen 10Ks, 34 half marathons, which is 13.1 miles each, three full marathons, and possibly 300 Spartan races, between two and 300 easily easy between two and three hundred yes um <laughs> and for our listeners at home and we again we have a vast audience so spartan races are a combination and they typically well no they're not typically but they're run on all kinds of surfaces they could be in the woods they could be up mountains they could be in ballparks they could be on urban areas and then have a combination of elevation and obstacles there's always some form of obstacle not only in terrain, but then also obstacles along the course that you are required to compete, which can range anywhere from throwing a spear to climbing monkey bars, to climbing obstacles, to carrying things, dragging things, going in water. Uh, I know Spartan, I've done a handful of them um, and they love mud and they love water and they love combining those two things. So it's not just going out, hey, I'm gonna crutch or I'm gonna, go through these three miles or and the other thing with spartan you have various distances not just terrain and obstacles and there's usually three to four different distances right there's i think they go from like a 5k all the way up to like a marathon and then beyond the marathon too as well and then there's the death race which i don't think we want to bring up but <laughs> just no no then they do that ultimate spartan which is like a three-day adventure as well were you ever able to do one of those the agogi the agogi yes i did do an agogi last summer um i was voluntold about it by the ceo of spartan race a few days before and sent up there as um basically i think i was more of like a science project to see <laughs> how far i could go but i finished um this event was a 60 hour event 60 plus hours. Mm. So I forget how many hours we got there, 64, 65. Um, apparently we covered 85 miles in the mountains of Vermont. 
um, completing all different obstacles. And my friend Jonathan Lopez, who's a soldier, he is an amputee as well. But he also, even though he doesn't have any of his left arm, he still flips double monster truck tires. He's, we call it getting Lopez T. The reason I've done most of the crazy things that I've done is because Lopez Lopez's me. <laughs> you got Lopez. I got Lopez, big time. So um, Lopez and the CEO of Spartan Race are the ones that told me that I was going to do this. And they said um, that Lopez would help me out. He's like, well, Lopez was born in Colombia. So he's like, Amanda, don't worry about it, okay? Agogi, it means 5K in French, bro. Well, guess what? That was hashtag fake news because it was not a 5K. <laughs> By the way, I'm also, I can barely make it to survive in my apartment, let alone in the, in the I am not meant to be in the woods of Vermont. So I actually ended up with uh, mild hypothermia at one point. Basically, it's made so that you can get like pulled from different things mm-hmm. and then they'll give you the option to go back in. So the way that the temperature was, people were getting heat stroke during the day and then hypothermia at night. Well, I was one of those people and I decided, I didn't realize how badly I wanted to do this event. Obviously, it's not handicapped accessible. <laughs> yeah, the mountains of Vermont used to be, don't have, yeah. And also, um, since I was a latecomer, I got added to a group on Facebook which traumatized me. All these athletes from all over the world were talking about how they were practicing their hatchet tossing and showing pictures of their gear, which this was in June. They were packed in February. I'm like, I don't even know what's on the gear list and this thing is like in two seconds. And so when I got actually to the event, we slept for just a few hours and it started, I forget what time, but sometimes very early in the morning. It was probably 4 a.m. and I had a Munster and Lopez was drinking coffee. And while I was drinking my Munster, trying to just absorb a little bit of happiness, before, I was like, I don't even want to be here. Why am I even here? These people were so crazy. Like, you could see their abs through double compression. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm going to die. <laughs> so um, everybody was looking at me weird. And this one girl said, I cannot believe that you're drinking that. And I thought she was going to tell me because Monster's not good for me. And yeah. she said that everything is like sleep deprivation. So most likely they're going to give us like a, maybe one or two 15-minute naps. But... You need to sleep. <laughs> no, that they, they basically... Um, yeah, they keep us from sleeping. Yeah. And they'll take all of our food and make sure that none of it gives us energy. So... Um, they had stopped months before with their caffeine, so their bodies weren't dependent on it at all. Meanwhile, here I am chugging a monster, monster. the day of. I was like, oh no. How am I going to get through the next uh, yeah, 12 exactly. hours or but, the next four hours? Yeah, exactly. Um, but anyways, I did survive. Okay. And I will tell you something that was incredible. It's probably one of my proudest moments when something happened when I got the hypothermia. Um... First of all, I was, I was hallucinating too. It was like a combination of like sleep deprivation and who knows what else. But like, I started seeing, I saw a huge leprechaun in a tree. Yeah, I would say in the woods of Vermont, that's probably a good, good hallucination. <laughs> apparently, I was talking. That's time to like take a time out and go to the med tent. Yeah, I mean, apparently, I was talking to this girl Sabine, and I was like, "Look at the leprechaun." 
It's so big. You see it? It's so big. And then I was like, oh, it's a leprechaun. It's a dog. It's Clifford the big red dog. <laughs> so everyone was making fun of me about that. But anyways, um, at the very end, we thought it was over. And then they brought us back to the top of a hill and told us that there was one pond that we hadn't had to go into yet. Mm. So we had to figure out where the pond was and we had to sprint, get in and like jump into the pond. It was like freezing already and we had to submerge ourselves like to our shoulders. But when we were running to the pond, I was following uh, my friend Pablo who actually knew where we were going because I have no sense of direction. And (laughs) I beat, once I saw where it was, I beat the entire group running and then I will say by the end, like so many people were crippled. I felt like <laughs> I felt like I was with my people. Everyone like made like makeshift canes out of like trees. It felt so fun. I was like, look at all yeah. my people. You guys are all my people. But I, I I had an advantage because I went into it like they were feeling broken, like um, mentally, because their bodies were falling apart. But I went into it with my body already falling apart. So that was just a given for me. So I was like, this is my strength. And then, and then when we were coming back out of the pond, I beat everybody again. For me to beat people running, granted everybody was crushed, but yeah. um, so was I. So for me, um, was it like a level playing field for every, you know for everyone? And it like- was. Uh, I I felt really proud of myself that I finished. Um, now I will say I have no interest in doing one again. Um, just like you said, you were talking about death race. This year, death race, which is very similar to what I just described. Um, this year, death race, they said, instead of it being an individual event, it's so a gogi is like a survival course. They teach you like which plants to eat and like how to make torches out of whatever, like ba- different barks and stuff that, so it can burn for a half hour straight. But death race this year is teams. So Lopez tags me. And so he, that's what he does. He'll tag me on social media and everybody's like, oh my God, you're so inspiring. And Lopez is like, I, I always say, listen, whatever, all of a sudden I'm getting like a hundred messages. I'm like, oh no, Lopez has signed me up for something else. So, um, death race is teams. So Lopez is like, Amanda, BFF forever, bro. I'm like, can't BFFs just barbecue? Maybe go to the bar. Like, I don't want to die. You don't want to. Yeah. I don't want to die. Don't want to go on a death race. I don't want to go on a death race. Yeah, you go get out a for skull. and uh and for for burgers. We, yeah, and can we just like do all you can eat pizza or something. So in January, I just had my leg amputated, which we'll get to guys in a little bit. But I get a call from Lopez Facetime. But Lopez cannot do anything to me, guys, because I've just had my leg amputated, so I felt safe. So I picked up his call. Well, guess who's on the other end? It's not Lopez. It's Joe DeSena, the CEO of Spartan Race. I'm like, oh, no, the fear. And he's smiling. I'm like, oh, man. Then I think, no, he's just just saying hi. (laughs) Joe starts talking, and then I see cameras behind him, and they're filming this. I'm like, that is never good. So, um, and then Lopez appears. He's like, hello, Amanda. (laughs) So Joe said, um, Sullivan, I will say that I have heard, I thought, of every excuse and reason in the book 
to avoid doing a death race or an agogi, I gotta give it to you. Cutting off your leg is probably the most solid excuse I've ever heard. But I don't care if you cut off your leg to escape us. I'll see you in June, July, whenever it is. You wanna come out in June and train? That's fine, July, death race. See you there. I'm like, oh my God. So um, apparently they don't care that I um, only have five toes. <laughs> you qualified. <laughs> So you've got a date in July. I don't race. plan on going there. So then you do the Spartans. You come to this. We get to 16 and your mom gets sick. 2015. So she got sick in, sick in 15. Mm-hmm. When was she diagnosed? She was diagnosed October 9th, 2015. And... I think someone on social media somehow made the connection. I think you went out to social media at this point now in your life, like, and also the evolution of social media. I know you talked earlier about social media and being on Facebook, but now fast forward, there's Instagram. Instagram wasn't around in 2012. (laughs) Um, And just, I think the growth of social media, um, you had created a following. I know there were YouTube videos out there with some of your, um, Spartan races and some of the achievements that you've uh, achieved at that point. So you had this following and I think we got tagged. I got connected. I know there's even a backstory. I think we mentioned off the air before we started recording. I, I think I told you like years ago, someone had, I think when you first started doing Spartan races, someone had said, Hey, like when I had started project purple and it's kind of around that time, like that things were, I think, we were just talking about it, the 13, that I did this 13 half marathons in 13 months, which was right about the time when Wait, you started. I didn't know that part. Yeah. Hold on. You are like a treasure no, chest. No, no, no. Okay, guys, let me just tell you. Um, Dino, you might know him as, you know, Mr. Project Purple. He is like... This is Mac- not my podcast. This Listen, is your he podcast. He's like MacGyver and Chuck <laughs> Norris combined. He is talking just so casually and just throws in how he did three marathons in 21 days. Okay, guys? Um I thought he was going to talk about the donut he was eating. That's how casual it <laughs> was. That's why I get to eat these donuts is because you, <laughs> yeah. you run three marathons Now he's just casually days. just throws in no. 13.1 miles. Wait, a day did you say? No, it was, so it was 13 half marathons. and So one every month for 13 months because a half marathon is 13.1. So we said, okay, like that's how we kicked off Project Purple in 2011. And in that journey, that actually started in June of 11 and it went all the way through like you know, uh, July of 2012. So it kind of paralleled. And I think someone, a good friend of mine, I don't know how he got to find you. He was very involved in like the YMCA in Connecticut. Um, and he, I used to do high school officiating basketball. So maybe it was through that too. Um, but he had mentioned you and he said, Hey, you have to check this lady out um she's doing some amazing things and so i remember seeing your story years like when you had started to do the spartan races and everything and then your mom gets diagnosed at 15 we get tagged in a post and then i think you and i communicated we reached out we had spoke via i think originally it was like dm right Mm -hmm. like when people and and, you know it's just so crazy i remember it's almost like it was yesterday amanda where like your mom was you guys were kind of confused with treatment and I was like, hey, this is my mom. This is what I would do. 
I think you were very appreciative. I'm not going to speak for you, but I know. Um, and so there were a lot of conversations through, I think, the first original couple months like that. And we kind of built this relationship. And then I think, what was the, because I, I don't think I ever asked. It wasn't like, hey, Amanda, will you run for us? I think you were just like, hey, I want to run the New York Marathon. <laughs> and I was like, sure, I'd love to have you on board. <laughs> so 2016. Yeah. Well, first, let me just say that when my mom was diagnosed, first, we don't have cancer in my family. I have an aunt who had cancer, but that was sort of like a freak thing for us. And it was always just something that happens to other people. And I'm not someone that would usually say that because so many things have happened to my family, as anyone with a bigger family would say the same. But it's just cancer was just never part of our vocabulary. Mm-hmm. And so my mom kept saying that she she was like, I think I'm lactose intolerant. When I start having ice cream, I got a little bit of a pain in my side. <laughs> By the way, my mom hated when I would do that voice for her, but... <laughs> you do it very good. I told... She does not talk like that, guys. <laughs> she... I know she's giving me double middle fingers from the other side right now because I told her I was always going to do that voice for her, and I still do. So anyways... Um, she got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and it was like the world stopped turning and i was living in georgia at the time my siblings took leaves of work uh, leaves of absence from work we all came home from different parts of the states immediately because my mom was given less i mean between one and three months left to live at the time at the time and they were like you know most likely less than a month i mean she was dying there was no doubt about it she was in bed she wasn't eating and drinking it was terrible and so um what was so overwhelming for me was obviously i had been in hospitals and with doctors and stuff but my situation to me felt more like okay you're injured right now is the worst (laughs) there's a potential for you to get better but if i worked at it i wasn't going to get worse whereas my mom's situation was just like a death sentence is that's what it felt like um it was very hard to even try to see through any of the confusion just because all the messages i was getting on social media were just horrific stories of people they knew or people they love that had passed away from pancreatic cancer and it seemed like every person had a different opinion on treatment mm. and because pancreatic cancer would sweep in and take people's lives so quickly it felt like you didn't have a choice. It's like whichever option we choose, it's either gonna work or it's not. If it doesn't work, she's gone. So it was like a Russian roulette. And the anxiety and the stress, and we were so overwhelmed. It felt like meeting with certain doctors, it's like they, they were treating my mom like she was a guinea pig. Like it seemed like they were sizing her up for a, tr- a clinical trial. Hmm. Um, and if they heard that she didn't have any history of pancreatic cancer, and they were just like, all right, no, we don't need you. So um, I've never felt like that before. Just complete anxiety. It's like my mom was on a conveyor belt, like dead man walking. The overall consensus was for different types of cancer, 
it's easy to find your doctor. You know, there's just so many options, so many treatment options. And then the hard part is the actual treatment. That's the stressful part. Whereas what we were hearing was the stressful part is actually finding the doctor because there's only really two types of chemo. I don't know if it's still like that, but at the time there was only two different chemo options if we were gonna go the route of chemo. And then once we chose the path, we would find um, a schedule. Mm -hmm. and, and then that was the easy part. So trying to find the doctor, the treatment, there's just so many different things, so many different alternative medicine options. I had people sending me messages saying that I'm gonna kill my mom if I make her do chemo and it's, her death is gonna be, a, her blood's gonna be on my hands. And I thought, you know, I'm not making my mom do anything. So we were just incredibly overwhelmed. And this is an instance when social media is and is not really helping. It wasn't and, and helping in some parts, but in other parts, it was amazing just because there are so many people reaching out to me yeah. who had been touched by pancreatic cancer. And that made me feel less alone. And they were telling well, it's me, a small community, mm -hmm. but it's also a very big community. And I, I think. And this is something that I, I have to thank you here in person, Amanda, for allowing us to be part of the journey and allowing, you know, and, and putting yourself out there. Because I think I've seen in my experience almost 10 years that people go through this trauma. Like you said, you're like, you're dazed and confused. There's no hope. And that's not something that people like to bring up, you know? So it's not as if, someone walks around and says, hey, I've been touched by pancreatic cancer. Because it's such a negative thing. It still is, unfortunately. And we are trying to work to change that. And that's what the ultimate goal is, right? But I think it's fascinating. And, and we probably have seen it. And you have run with us. And maybe you saw it. I hear this often, usually on every team, where someone says, oh, you know, I've known this person for so many years. And they lost their mom. You know, and or they lost their dad, or they lost a loved one. And whether you have someone fighting, or if you have lost someone, you just had this connection with someone. But then you learned so much more about them because no one talks about it, right? But it's something that's very real, and 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 not to say that people that have been touched by it that they're not any better for not talking about it. Everyone deals with it differently, I guess. I think for me, um, I felt unbelievably blessed that I do have a following on social media. Um, I mean, honestly, even if I only have 100 people on my page, the people that are on my page are very compassionate. And I think for every 100 people you have, if they only know 100 people themselves, now you're just multiplying it by 100. So I just feel like um, for as dazed and confused as we were, it was incredible to see how many people were touched by pancreatic cancer. And the messages that we got with all of the information, but the most important one of all was the one that linked me up with you. I don't know, I can't explain it. We were, it was like as if I was, had a blindfold on and I was being spun around. Like I was just like, where are we going? Which way is it? And all of a sudden I start talking to this person who just casually takes off the blindfold and turns on the light. That's what it was like talking to you. You were so, when I talked to you on the phone, 
you were so calm, which was the complete opposite. Everything else was so chaotic. It was just like complete urgency. There was one oncologist that everybody kept telling us that was the only one that could help my mom. Mm-hmm. And even though we had all these connections at the hospital, people that knew her, there was just no way. We just could not get an appointment with her. And the other appointments we were trying to get, people were telling us, my mom was diagnosed in October. They were saying, you know, in December they could see us. And we're like, my mom's going to be dead in December. So that was also unbelievably stressful. We even made a YouTube video that I started watching the other day. I forgot about it. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Oh, it's so sad. My mom wanted to make a video because she thought if we made a video, then this doctor would see it. See it. She thought we could send it to her and she would see it and see that my mom, even though she was diagnosed with this, that she she has all these loves and she wants to still be around for her grandbabies and she wants to be there for my twin brother's wedding and all these different things. And um, it was actually... <laughs> It was actually really sad because, first of all, it didn't get us the appointment. <laughs> and it was just, I just never been in a situation, like I felt like I was in another country trying to see a doctor. It's like, how is this, why is this so hard to see a doctor? If they're telling us she's gonna die, I, I would expect people to be there immediately. Like usually you call 911 if you're about to die and yeah, they come and, and take care right of you. Away, Nobody yeah. was helping us. And I talked to you and all you were was just straight facts. You were calm, straight facts, but also compassionate. I just felt like you were my older brother. I'm like, please help me. <laughs> so you just gave me so much amazing information. Um, but again, I'm blonde with TBI, so who knows how much I absorbed. I actually was taking notes, believe it or not. <laughs> so when I told my mom about you, when I was talking to you, I went inside and put it on speaker for a little bit. And when I hung up, my mom was like, who was that? I was like, oh my God. So I started telling her and she got tears in her eyes and she said the same thing about your voice. Like you just, it was just like you felt like you're at home. Like as if someone just gave us a hug. And meanwhile, like we hadn't told my mom that she was given one to three months because she runs like strictly on hope. Mm-hmm. She, If she had heard one to three months, she would have just given up and died. Um, and her oncologist that we ended up div- we ended up finding, it was almost as if, God closed the doors to everything around us and then just open the door to the absolute perfect oncologist for my mom, who was amazing bedside manner. My mom didn't need a doctor that was like, you know, I graduated from this, you know, giving us his resume and then treating my mom like a number. Some people love that. Um, My mom, on the other hand, she needs bedside manner. She needs someone that's going to hug her and tell her it's it's going to be be okay. okay, Exactly. And that's exactly what we found. As soon as we found this oncologist, my mom was like, I feel safe. Leading up to that, before I talked to you, it actually made me really angry at God and the world and just everything because here we're hearing that my mom has one to three months. My mom's lost all this weight. She's not eating. She's barely drinking. She's just like straight up dying. Her color was as if she was already dead. And she was sitting in her favorite chair um, with her favorite little blankie on, as she would say. She had her holy water. And she was just like, she just kept saying God was going to save her. And it made me so angry because I was like, God's not going to save you. (laughs) You're not getting saved. That's what I was thinking. I was like, "Uh, (laughs) 
no doctor will even see us. I don't even, I can't even understand why nobody will see us. Um, it felt like, you know, if it's like people get denied like a cake being made because of whatever their religious affiliation mm. or sexual orientation, it felt like that with doctors. We were just like, oh, how is it so hard to see them? I don't get it. <laughs> I'm in the United States. I'm in the New York City area. Why is it so hard? So talking to you, oh my God, between you and our oncologist, I was like, okay, you were just, you were like anything you need, plus you're in the area, so you you knew these different doctors, you knew the actual treatment plans, you knew people who had beat this beast. So I was like, all right, we're going to do this. And once we started treatment, First of all, I myself nor my siblings can lie. We just do not have poker faces. <laughs> but I started getting really good at lying because my mom would look me straight in the eyes. Like she's like Miss Conspiracy Theorist anyways. And she would look me straight in the eyes to like see if there was something I wasn't telling her. <laughs> but um, first of all, medicinal marijuana, we found out um, – Somebody in Europe sent me a message and, and all these links from Europe about um, Rick Simpson. Um, it's like a, a special way to extract the medicinal benefits from the oil um, that's been proven in different countries to stunt pancreatic cancer growth. So we knew a guy <laughs> who was a chemist. And this is, he already did this anyway. So he was like so excited to, to try it. this out. So he made my mom um, a bunch of cookies. Mm -hmm. um, my mom was like, I don't want to do it. They, these are just pot brownies. I don't want to do it. <laughs> and so <laughs> I was like, Mom, you're still mad at your own mom for not letting you go to Woodstock. P.S. Who asks their mom if they can go to Woodstock? Woodstock. That was on Let's you. Go. That was on you, Mom. <laughs> and so I got us tie-dye shirts, put on a little Janis Joplin in the dead. I was like, Mom, let's do this. And so <laughs> we ate the cookies. <laughs> It was so cool because all she needed to do was take a tiny bite. And the fact that she wasn't eating, it was perfect. So she had a little tiny bite. Um, they had given her, I don't know, maybe 20 different types of pills. And she just wanted nothing to do with any of them. But truthfully, her anxiety was as bad as all of her other pains. A couple minutes after she bit the cookie, um, she said that the weight the anxiety that was like weighing on her chest, she said it felt like it just went away. So my mom, she had a tumor in her pancreas, innumerable tumors in her lungs, um, an unrelated, no wait, not just one, is it two maybe? I forget, unrelated masses in her heart and three tumors on her spine. So she said that she felt like the weight of the anxiety was gone. The pain through her back was gone. Her pain in her side where her pancreas was gone. Um, the shooting pains in her lungs. Everything was gone from one bite. And I was just like, okay. So my mom, then what did she want? She wanted to drink water. And then she wanted something healthy like a lasagna. So that was another really big blessing for us. And then once we started the treatment, we formed Team Sullivan. And what I want to say about this pancreatic cancer is it was a blessing for my family and for my mom. Um, my mom said it herself. You know, there's so many different diseases that affect people the same as cancer. 
But when people hear cancer, they react. Mm-hmm. Um, so everybody instantly rallied around my mom. And my mom, her whole life, like as you saw the um, license plate, like her yeah. whole life, she's been the black sheep. She had jet black hair growing up and olive skin and these big brown eyes. And um, she, her father died right before her ninth birthday. And she just always sort of felt like an orphan because she says like she was a daddy's girl. And so with all these different things that happened in her failed marriage with my dad and just different traumas she suffered in her life, she always felt like she was alone. And the reason why her cancer was such a blessing was because like in her words, she said it was like being at her living wake where usually somebody passes away and you have people from all walks of life that come out of the woodwork to support them. My mom had friends from grammar school reach out to her. So my mom has all these people rallying around Team Sullivan. Um, Myself and my sister are at the head of it, um, doing updates and getting, my mom was just so excited to read the comments that people were leaving her. She loved the post that I would put on Facebook and I would print it out so she could read all the comments over and over and over again when she couldn't sleep at night. And she had a basket next to her favorite chair where she kept every single card or letter or note that people left her. Um, What was so amazing about it as well was her grammar school friends, her high school friends, and her, well, her grammar school and high school friends, it was a private Catholic school for the most part. It was like the same group. And her college friends had, we organized slumber parties. So they came from all over the country. Some of them were even in different parts of the world. Everyone came in. I think she had two for each. I can't even tell you how cute it was. All these little ladies coming in with they brought their slumbers. What is it called? Sleeping, Sleeping bags. bags. Yeah. Pillows. And it was so fun. And thanks to Netflix and everything, I could find like the old shows that they liked. We were playing with Alexa, like all their old music that they liked. And it was honestly like my mom was a kid again. And one of the things that sparked that was when we first met with her oncologist. Like I said, the other oncologists would give us um, complete rundowns of their own resume. Nobody ever asked my mom about her. When my mom first met with her oncologist, his name's Dr. Soraya, the first thing he did was he said, you know, he introduced himself and my mom introduced herself and my mom introduced us. And then he said, okay, Mariana, tell me about you. And it was the first doctor that asked us that at all, let alone right in the beginning. And and my mom's like, well, you know, my mom was so lost and so devastated. And she said she's just prepared to die. And he said, no, I want to know who you are. He's like, tell me about, I have an idea. Tell me about Mariana in high school. He's like, what were you like? Did you just kind of follow rules and... And my mom gets this little mischievous smile on her face. (laughs) My mom said, oh, I wouldn't say that. And so he's like, tell me about you. Did you play sports? Who are your friends? That set the stage for my mom's recovery. It just instantaneously took her out of the I'm dying mode and brought her right back to such an awesome time in her life. And she's telling him about, you know, the different sports she played, different things she did, the different guys that she liked, all these different things. 
how in college she was a hippie and she would skinny dip in some river or whatever. She was, like, <laughs> she was saying all these things and it was so awesome. My mom was just so excited talking about it. And he's like, okay, so that's Mariana. That's the Mariana that I need right now. What would that Mariana say if I said, you know what? I have a challenge for you. Would she back down? And my mom's like, absolutely not. And he's like, okay, well, we got a little challenge, but this is what we're going to do. X, Y, Z. And my mom's like, I'm ready. So that was a, a massive blessing. Um, but like I said, she connected with so many people who would have come to her funeral or her wake. You know what? They might not have even heard about her funeral or wake. So it was as if all of these holes and wounds on my mom's soul, I watched them get patched up over the two and a half years that she fought it, which for me, apart from being her caretaker, was one of the biggest blessings of my life by far. So what was so amazing was that my mom was the one who took care of me when I was first injured. And like I said, I'd been out of the country for 10 years. I had no intentions of coming back. And my life was in danger in the places where I worked. Protecting little kids who'd been terribly abused, we would link up with lawyers and put the perpetrators behind bars. But in those countries, they buy their way out. And who are they going to remember? The person who puts them away. <laughs> They're going to remember the single feminazi that they see me as, you know, kind of double middle fingering them in a way. Um, so... I honestly felt like in my own situation, my days were very numbered. Uh, like I said, I had some few bad things happen, but I'd never been um, traumatically injured the way I was in my accident. But I almost felt like I was recovering too fast from my first one. <laughs> and I was still going right by my, I'm not even going to do a lawsuit. I'm going right back down. So I feel like that could have easily happened. They were car accidents. It wasn't something that would only specifically happen in one part of the world. The fact that they both happened when I was right in the area of my mom's house and I had the blessing of having my mom take care of me. It was like when she got diagnosed, I just felt like so grateful for my accident. I just was, my prayers were just thanking God for making my accident happen. And this is like that arch again, or yeah. the, the circle, right? So like your mom took care of you when you were going through your worst of times. Mm -hmm. And now your mom is facing this like, you know, terminal disease and you're there for her and it brings the family together and, and kind of just, if you look at back, in hindsight again is easy to look back and say like this, that, but you look at your life's experiences, even from the jungles of, you know, those third world countries of being able to provide for those children. You go through your experience and then now your mom. I think that's it. I honestly feel like. It's like prepared you along yeah, the way. Like, I, like I it think each this, got harder, right? Yeah. Oh, like yeah. It's harder. It, it keeps getting harder. But honestly, it's like what you're talking about with the Spartan race. One of the most important things I learned in those races was, A, I'm never alone. I could go up to one of those big walls, which would be, let's say, representative of a huge obstacle in my life. And I could just stare at it and try to figure out how to get over it. Or I could look around me and see that there are actually people around me. I just need to be brave enough to ask for help and honestly i didn't ask for asking for help was something i never had to do really yeah, they would just i help. was overly 
um, I don't know what the word would be. Some people might call it a feminist. I don't know what it was, but like if someone asked me in another country, like a man, hey, can I, let me carry those huge heavy boulders you're carrying. Mm. I would be like, no, I got this. Actually, give me your boulders too. So <laughs> I was extremely the other way. Whereas now, if I'd be like, uh, can you pull? <laughs> can you grab those? Can you grab these? And yeah. while you're at it, um, maybe go to the corner store and get me some, <laughs> get some monsters. Yeah, get me monsters. Get, bring some monsters on your way in. As we <laughs> yeah, did. exactly. So that for me was like one of my biggest lessons was learning to ask for help. But these lessons that I learned when I was in my accident recovery, I don't know if I would have ever figured out the blessings in them if I hadn't had so much time of just bed rest and meditation. I almost felt like I was like this little Buddhist monk just in my bed, just searching through my whole life and trying to make sense of it because in all of these villages, they always talk about the circle of life and they're all about the circle because they say that, like let's say the sun or the moon, we're attracted to circular things. So they would always say like the circle if you were to wear like a necklace that has a circle on it, or your, let's say your ring that's a circle, the circle creates a funnel for the universe to just funnel all of this goodness and love and inspiration and hope and strength into your soul. And the ring around it is blocking off all of the evil. So I always say to look for the circle. So while I was in bed in my recovery, I'm realizing all these different things, but I never even thought about I mean, I was grateful my mom was taking care of me, but I didn't even think about how fortunate I was for those years oh, yeah. that I had with her. Because when she got diagnosed, it's like, oh my God, mom's going to go. And all I was thinking was, I was never going to come home. I would either die in another country or have lost all those years with mom. Now, you said something, and so, and I'm going to skip here, not being alone, and that's kind of jumping on and running the New York Marathon with us in 17, your first year. And I remember at the cheer zone, seeing you for the first time coming in through Brooklyn, you were not alone. You had that year you had run with, uh, I think it was four people. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we accumulated extra people along the way. <laughs> I think it was you and a friend and then you uh -huh. picked up two along the way and then there was more <laughs> along the way. So you do 17. Your mm -hmm. mom is still alive, still battling. In 2017, um, so basically my mom ended up getting stronger. And I did yeah. to my mom exactly what she did to me. I was like, okay, mom, today we're going to get to the bottom of the driveway. So my mom starts, I basically was giving her speeches as if she was a boxer getting ready to step yeah. into the ring. And there were so many times where she would just be completely broken. You know, like the New York Times did this big thing that was on the cover of the Sunday Times about pancreatic cancer. And I came down one day on a Sunday. It was like 6.30 in the morning. And my mom is hysterically crying on the floor with the paper all around her. Like sobbing uncontrollably. I'm like, Mom, what's going on? So I picked her up and got her into her chair and her favorite chair, like I said. And she's telling me about this story in the paper, how it's a woman who wrote this story and her husband died and then like statistics for pancreatic cancer and she had no idea and she's gonna die and she's gonna miss everyone getting married and she's never gonna meet her grandkids and oh my God. And so I was like, mom. So I started explaining how 
Um, this is sensational news. <laughs> I was like, they're going to give a story. And I'm like, most of the time, like right now, at the time of politics, how much are they talking about? Fake news and Fake statistics. News, yeah. And I was like, you can twist things around however you want. So I basically got my mom so pumped up that we went for a walk that day and we walked two miles. And I was like, mom, every time you feel like you're getting beaten down by this disease, that just means that you need to fight harder. And I'm like, the most important part of any recovery, you can't tell in a CAT scan or your, is it the CA 919 mm -hmm. or um, an x-ray. The most important part of any recovery is what's inside of your soul. And I'm like, you have no idea who these other people are that they're comparing you to when they give statistics. Because honestly, like we were talking about right now, most Americans are not healthy. Most Americans are not eating well. They're certainly not working at working out. Even when people see you working out, they always want to know why you're working out. Like, are you doing a race? Are you doing a competition? And I'm just like, I, first of all, I move so slow that people don't even realize I'm working out. <laughs> they're like, do you need help? Are you trying to, do you need to go to the hospital? <laughs> I've actually had when I was training for the marathon twice. I had that senior citizen van, the handicap van, trying to pick me up. Pick I'm like, get up. out of here! I'm working out. <laughs> so, anyways, but truthfully, um, I'm like, who are they comparing you to? You know, I did that all the time when I got injured. When I would hear, I would look up statistics on different parts of my injury and read them, and I'm like, okay. Well, that's where the internet becomes a negative and not yeah. a positive. And I think that's one thing, like. You said, like, it can be awesome, social media, and there's negatives, and then the same thing can be for the internet with this disease in particular. I mean, there is a, there is a harsh reality of it, and we mm -hmm. all know that. Yeah. But I don't think we need to be told it every day. No, and it depends on each person. Like, what's the difference between my mom not making it a month and my mom not only surviving, but banging out what, um, banging out items on her bucket list. My mom went canyoneering. She swam with dolphins in the Caribbean. You just she went away, right? She yeah, my, we did uh, Eastern Paris, New Year's Eve in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. uh, my mom did Tunnel to Towers 5K with me. She did a whole 5K. Um, that was also in 2000, no, that was in 2016. Yeah. My mom did Tunnel to Towers 5K and like she kept disappearing on us. I'm like, oh my gosh, I lost. At that time, there was like 40-something thousand people. I'm like, oh my God, we lost my mom again. And then you'll see all a group of handsome older firefighters laughing. And in the middle, you see just like a little bits of wisps of gray hair sticking up. I'm like, is that my mom? That's your mom. And I go over, and my mom's like, get away from me. I'm stage four. I don't have time for games. <laughs> <laughs> so awesome. all these men were just in love with her. So they are like, I was like, Mom, you probably did like a 7K, an yeah. 8K. Like, and so she had an absolute blast. And I think the point for my mom was getting out and being active. Because I told my mom, like for me, when I would read things that were bad statistics, and when my, um, I started when my doctors would tell me things I can't do, I would actually ask them to write it down because for me, now that's a challenge. And you're telling me what I, how, you don't know me. Hi, Amanda Sullivan. I can do whatever the F I want. I might have to do it. It might take me 20 years, but I'm going to do it. And for my mom, she's, I was like, Mom, you're Irish from Philly. You're just going to back down. Like, so 
of course, my mom, when we asked our oncologist about eating healthy, we're like, you know, because you, everyone's saying, obviously, like, green vegetable juices. And my mom's like, I'd rather die of pancreatic cancer than have to drink a green vegetable juice every day. So I just feel like <laughs> she definitely lived on her terms. But when I did the 2017 New York City Marathon, um, my mom was going to be at the finish line. And my training was so healing for me because, um, well, first of all, just training in general is such a gift for me because after being, I was in bed for two years straight. To be able to do that. Yeah. And now I don't even know how. People ask how long I was bed rested. I used to say two years straight and then three years in total just because, um, you know, all the extra times I would push myself and get bedridden again. But honestly, I was thinking the other day, especially after all this bed rest, I have no idea. I don't know. I mean, when they're like, well, how long was your recovery? My recovery is ongoing. But truthfully, one of the things I would tell my mom was, for me, my body had to be broken in order for my soul to be healed. And honestly, it's so crazy that that's exactly what happened with my mom. Um, What I told my mom, like, you know, I think that when we're going to go, we're going to go. My mom's end of life was going to be March 20th, 2018, no matter what. That's when she was done with her time here. So for me, she could have died in a car accident. She could have died in any which way. Um, But the blessing is that we knew ahead of time. The blessing is that my mom had all this extra time where each, literally each second, you're just trying to absorb it because you really appreciate everything that's most important in life. When I would go for walks with my mom and look at her, it's kind of the equivalent of like seeing a little baby looking at things for the first time. Like I would love just to look at her, like the way that she would talk about the trees and the flowers and like blades of grass. Like she was truly absorbing everything. And she just kept saying like, I feel like this is the fall of my life. And like all the, all the leaves are changing colors, but they're so vibrant. That's how my heart feels. Yeah, that's how her heart feels. And so for me, um, being able to be a part of that, and it's so crazy. I was like, Mom, you're the one that made me as strong as I am. Sometimes I'm like, I feel bad for you that I'm your caretaker because my mom's like a five-star chef. Meanwhile, I legit burned microwave popcorn. <laughs> I was like, did the, chemo take, did the chemo take away your sense of taste yet? Yeah. <laughs> She's like, no. <laughs> so... 17, so, yeah, 2017, do I do the race. Um, Mom wasn't there at the finish because she wasn't feeling great that day, right? And that day was a little bit wet, it right? Was a little bit. It was raining and raining freezing. in the morning and it was cold. Lot so I did the, yes. And so we were raising, or 18. we were raising um, awareness, obviously, for yeah. pancreatic cancer. But I did it with my friend Earl, yeah. um, who's combat wounded amputee in Afghanistan, and my friend Lopez, who, like I said, I already explained Lopez, and Earl's girlfriend, Lindsay, and yep. we picked up um, my friend Ben, the Asian sensation. He's like a half-naked cowboy. Yeah. <laughs> Along the way. So for me, it was very empowering to have those guys with me. It just, I just felt like everything's going to be okay. Obviously, from the standpoint of being on crutches um, and getting trampled, there's so many times where I almost got trampled, trampled and they yeah. kind of like formed a ring around me. Yeah. 
not to mention the fact they were giving they had like wet sponges i guess to help people if they were overheating but it was pouring rain and they were handing out the sponges so at every water station there was who knows how many wet sponges all over the ground so people kept wiping out on them because it was pouring rain so imagine that with crutches i had two extra points of contact where i could slip (laughs) um but i did feel bad when my mom couldn't go because she was heartbroken that she couldn't go. So before I left to go to the marathon, I was just going to Uber. And my mom came out in the hallway and she was hysterically crying and apologizing. And I felt like before I started the marathon, I felt like I was a terrible daughter because I felt like I put my mom in a position where I just broke her heart. And so uh, it just made me feel terrible. But my mom's best friend came in um, and hung out with her for the day with my niece and nephew. So she was happy with that. But when 2018 happened, um, my mom's health sort of goes down the tubes. Like I started saying the day before, she had me take her to get her nails done. So I never told my sister that. And honestly, her nails were um, the highlight of her experience in the hospital because they were like bright red and everybody was compliment they looked amazing it was like such a contrast with with the white and my mom's like she was like i told you so and she said everyone always says to have clean underwear she's like it doesn't matter you're in a they make you take everything off to put on this robe but it's the nails and so it was so fun seeing my, my mom was like Everybody had crushes on her, you know. She was so funny, making jokes. And she would get wheeled away to a procedure and come back. And she'd have, like, 15 new friends. Like, <laughs> I was like, oh, I see where I get it from. Um, but when um, my mom was in the hospital, we found out that she had two liters of blood and liquid in her left lung, I believe. And my mom, whenever we would go for walks and stuff, my mom would always tell me that she had a hard time breathing. And my sister would be like, you know, that's because you have cancer, mom. And I'd be like, no, I'm pretty sure it's her allergies. I'm like, mom, my friends have been saying that their allergies are killing them. I was like, I have such a hard time breathing. And I do have Claritin at home. My mom's like, really? It's totally my allergies. <laughs> and so, like, I would give her Claritin. And she's like, I feel like I can breathe perfectly. <laughs> So that's like what we would do all the time. I always be like, I would read messages on social media. Like she'd be next to me and I'd click on a message on my page, which would be a message about just such a nice, kind-hearted message about someone's dad. My mom's like, oh, look, her dad has pancreatic cancer. Read that to me. So I'd be very cautious, obviously, because realistically I know what's going on. But my, yeah. my mom's oncologist told her, if you're going to go online, stick to what you know, online yeah. shopping, don't go into watch animal videos on youtube don't he's like there's just no need for you to be looking at statistics there's There's no no bearing on you there's no benefit no benefit and it doesn't apply to you and so i would always tell my mom i'm like you're kind no the the strain that you have is not what those statistics are mom's like really i'm like yeah well i i think though um that's truth though and i think we just don't know enough and that's where, like, I, I really, you said something before and coming back a little bit 
you know, with the doctor. And I think that's something that patients, I talk to probably a family a week. And the first thing I say is have a, an able-bodied person, like a, a sibling or a, a child or, you know, not necessarily the spouse because the spouse is in a si- different situation, but a third party or someone who can think and give answers logically and interpret what the doctor's saying to the patient because patient's not listening regardless. But we just don't know enough. Like this is the most underfunded cancer of all cancers in the world. We don't know enough about this disease. So statistics are important and they are based on facts and they are based on what we know, but we also don't know a lot. So to say that you are not gonna be the 9% that lives, you can't say that to yourself because you might be. And you know what? Someone may say one to three months, but I know people that have lived seven years that are still living that were told one to three months. Yeah. You know, we've had people on the podcast um, that have been told, you know, one to three months and they're living four or five years um, and, and, you know, they're still battling, but they're still living. So I I think that's so important. But how are you living for my mom? She just kept saying that ever since she got diagnosed every day, all she wants to do is just squeeze. She's like, it reminds me of being a little kid and getting a snow day. Yeah. The feeling like squeeze that day and live you that just, day. Yeah, like you're just that, living like that day like, day. yeah. And my mom's like, for me, when I was younger, I had Saturday and Sunday off from school, but getting a snow day. Oh, it was like a, it the was best like ever. In the lottery. Exactly. So my mom's like, that's how every day feels like with pancreatic cancer. And she that was, you're alive. That she was alive, been able to Yeah, and she's flowers. like absorbing every, yeah. every single thing. And so when my mom's health started going down the tubes, um, well, honestly, I wouldn't say it was going down the tubes. I mean, who the knows? Wheels, she had that for a while. The wheels fall off, as we've talked. Mm-hmm. The wheels fall off, and not to say that health is going down the tubes, but it's the inevitableness of the disease catching up with the time that you have or that person has here. That is my healthy. mom went for a two-mile walk two days before. It may have even been the day before. I can't remember. I'll have to look at my journal. Before she ended up in the hospital. And so my mom went for a two-mile walk up and down hills, did not complain one time, and she had two liters of blood Blood in her lung. So she goes into the hospital. She goes in the hospital. She has a bunch of different procedures. We did, like, um, I think two different blood transfusions. She had the big tube put in. To drain the the fluid. To drain the fluid. That was very eye-opening, watching how much came out. It was actually... First, it was shocking and horrifying, and then it became cathartic. I just, like, wanted it to just keep draining everything so out. So she'd feel better. Yes. Yeah. Um, we came home. She basically lied to – she put on a show, essentially, and they released her home. It was the night before a huge blizzard last year. It was the last big blizzard of the year, right before Easter. Mm-hmm. And as soon as she got home, it was like – 10 30 at night and my sister left and my mom's now in her jammies on sitting in her chair and she was like all ready to watch netflix and she had her puppy on her just so excited and her dog is like her favorite child yeah (laughs) child (laughs) anyways as soon as everybody leaves my mom looks at me and she told me um just so you know i lied to get out of the hospital, I actually feel worse than I did. Um, I might suffocate tonight. 
and um, I'm not going back to the hospital. I'm like, what? And she also threatened me to not tell my sister. Just what she would always do. I'm like, uh, and she's like, tomorrow's a snow day. And it really was a snow day. <laughs> she's like, all I wanted to do was be home in my jammies yeah. and watch the snow fall from the window and make watch movies all day. I was like, fine. <laughs> so that's what we did the next day. I was like, this is what she wants. It was amazing. We were both in my mom's bed. She's like, I feel like a little girl again. And um, we were both in matching jammies, watching movies nonstop. She loved like oldie movies and stuff and watching the snow fall from the windows and just listening to her talk about life. And it was amazing. And then the next day we went to um, her oncologist. She was originally going to get chemo. And then, of course, they're like, you're not doing well. And then they admitted her. Yes. Um, She ends up back in the hospital. And she was in the hospital then for, I think, two weeks. And what we did was every day was a party. My mom's biggest fear the whole time that she was sick was being in the hospital. She was just trying to avoid it at all costs. So we're like, we need to make this as homey as possible. And every doctor or nurse that came by or came in said this, you could feel the energy and love from your room in the hallway. So that I felt like was wonderful. And everybody was so nice to us. People were like sending food down to the main lobby and bringing it up to us. And my mom actually just felt so loved. And it made me feel very grateful. And there was this amazing family two doors down, or maybe three doors down, the Velazquez's. Um, Terry was, I think, 40, and she had breast cancer. She was only diagnosed a year before. And most of her family came in from Puerto Rico. She's a single mom. Um, when she first came in, both Terry and my mom were talking and Terry was dancing at one point and we be- we were the only two big families in the oncological unit. Everybody else seemed to be by themselves or with one person. And so we became very, very close. And because most of them came in from Puerto Rico, they didn't have people bringing them things. So luckily, so many people were loving on us, so we almost had too much. So we were just like sending everything down to them, and they're Catholic, and I was like, my mom's like, give them some of the holy water I have blessed by the Pope. So I lean in, and they're just like, everyone's blessing themselves, and it was just really awesome. And one, well, first of all, I will say that on St. Patrick's Day, I managed to sneak a bagpiper into my mom's room. I remember seeing the video, yeah. It was amazing. And my my connection uh, was a police officer in Madison, New Jersey. <laughs> and it was his son's friend was the bagpiper. And the cop basically was like, his name's Tom Downs. And let me tell you, he's amazing. And he basically said, you know, I'm a big guy. So I'm just going to... We'll close the door. I'll lean against it. We'll at least be able to get one out. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least one song out. And so then we're like, you know what? Let's not even, we don't even need to play this song. Like my mom was sort of like, she was on a lot of medication. And they kept preparing us that my mom was going to be in a coma forever. Like, not forever, but, you know, they're like, we're going to up her, um, what's it called? Not dilated. Uh, Begins what? with an M. Morphine. Morphine. They're like, we're going to up the morphine. And they saying, like, this is going to be it. So, like, we'd be, like, telling my mom how much we love her. Obviously not saying goodbye because she was in denial that, like, she was actually going anywhere. But 
I was like, they obviously underestimated how much my mom partied back in the 70s because let me tell you they would <laughs> first my mom was like trying not to have any of the medication i was like mom please now she wanted more uh, no i was like mom listen if someday you leave here and in 20 years we need to have an intervention on you because of you liking the medication you had when you when you were in here that will be such a blessing so i was like listen we're t- we're telling you to have it i'm like you're being monitored it's fine. I'm like, just pretend. It's like St. Patrick's Day week. Just give in and have fun. Imagine that you're at a party back in the day in New York City. So, <laughs> but again, my mom was hilarious on her morphine, but she would like fall asleep. And then um, <laughs> it would be like, oh, this is the end. And she'd take like a five minute power nap and she'd be back and talking. I'm like, oh my God. It's like looking at what I would be on, what I would be like. <laughs> and then... <laughs> Um, but, so she was starting to like fall asleep and we're like, okay, we don't even need to play the bagpipe. I was like, she's sort of out of it. So I'm like, why don't we just no, play the played, music? Yeah. You played the bagpipe. Well, first we thought we'd play the music on the hair and he would go through the motions. Yeah. So <laughs> we sneak him in. We're like expecting this huge reaction from my mom and we're like, wow, she really is like medicated. So I put this, my phone next door and put it on like iTunes or something. It's yeah. like Scottish bagpipes. And my mom is just like, open her eyes and is like, what? what is this? And she's like, is this guy going to play or what? <laughs> so we're like, oh, I guess he really has to play. So Tom closed the door. Yeah. He's like, let's do it. Let me tell you, all of our eardrums like exploded oh, on the so first loud. thing. It's like, yeah. we're in this quiet room. I mean, tiny, not tiny room, but like small for a bagpipe. If you're in a field, yeah. you're going to hear that for like three miles away. But it was amazing watching my mom absorb it. And the final, he played two songs in the final song. She just like, at the end, I have a video of it. I've watched it so many times. Like she closes her eyes and she's smiling. You can see like she's absorbed, like it's going right into her soul. And my mom was just like unbelievably happy. And then all the doctors and nurses came down because everyone, like the nurses were like, and doctors were like, it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission in this case. Mm-hmm. Um, but everybody loved it. And we had, um, Terry's family said she was like, even though Terry was in a coma, they said she was like moving to it. And like all the patients were like, that was the highlight of my stay. It just added, like it's St. Patrick's Day and it just added so much life to the infusion no it wasn't the infusion lounge but to the ward Mm. so a couple days later like when we finally well first of all let me just say that there is a man who i saw die when i was people were dying every day obviously Mm. in the oncology ward but i was in the hallway um giving an update to one of my family friends about my mom's situation and right in front of me i watched this guy take his last breath I guess it was, I'm guessing his wife and daughter, they were yelling at the doctor to do something for him. And the doctor was trying to explain, like, this all unfolded, like, right, (laughs) like, it wasn't happening before I stood over there. It just all happened right in front of me. And I guess he had a DNR, do not resuscitate, which is what my mom has. And the doctor was trying to explain, like, these are his wishes. And they're like, you, but like, screaming at him. And then another doctor came over and those two doctors were kind of like arguing with each other and everyone was like yelling. And I watched this man, like the look on his face reminded me of the look on the face of the man who ran me over. 
he just looks so heartbroken. And I was like, how terrible is this? What a terrible way to take your last breaths here in this life to see complete chaos. Like what kind of person wants to leave and see that their family's in turmoil? turmoil yeah. So while that was horrific, I did feel like it was so weird. It just happened right in front of me. And then I came back to my the room and everyone's like, what's going on out there? And then, and then you know, I just explain it. And they're like, what the heck? So I told my siblings and then I went to Terry's room and told them, you know, um, Team Terry, I was like, we all need to go into the little conference room. And I was basically like, listen, <laughs> this is a deal. I told them what happened and what I just saw. I'm like, this is happening. Both of our moms are about to enter Valhalla, heaven, the next life, whatever you want to call it, they're headed there. We cannot fight it. Um, there's nothing at this stage. This is how it is. This is a circle of life. Speaking of circles, I'm like, the most natural thing in the world is that we enter this life and we leave. It was like, just like the seasons, you know, like whatever you believe afterwards, um, it doesn't matter what you believe afterwards. The point is that this is a natural circle of life and it's happening. And it's about our moms. And I was like, I feel so terrible. The energy that I felt this is like, I felt sick to my stomach just because I saw the look on that man's face. And both of our moms, obviously as moms, like who wants to leave their kids and see them like hysterically crying and wailing. I'm like, it's not about us. It's 100% about our moms right now. We are going to have the rest of our lives to deal with whatever it is we see. For us, we've heard all these horror stories and... I know for a fact from my own accident and I know from my friends that stepped on IEDs in Afghanistan and Iraq. So many people say that you don't even like, they don't remember actually feeling pain mm -hmm. until later. So what we need to do is we have the advantage right now that we can pay attention to our mom's anxiety medication and our mom's pain medication. And ours, like Terry was, in a coma. But in our situation, I was like, we need to know the difference between um, like a regular grunt, like she's trying to talk or, and I'm in pain. Yeah. So I was like, for my mom, she's such like a conspiracy theorist and always trying to see like, are you like being, <laughs> is there something I'm missing? And that's what will give her anxiety. So I was like, we need to look her in the eyes. We need to form a ring around her of just pure love and light and circle, uh, circle, <laughs> and um, and strength and laughter. I was like, let's tell stories. Let's listen to her favorite music. Let's talk like we would at Christmas or Thanksgiving. Um, whatever happens is gonna happen. This is all part of the plan. And it's a blessing that this is happening when we're here. And so you, medicated. And you realize that, and that's like... It was huge, because when we went back in, it was like, I think the fear has always been that this was going to happen. It was our biggest fear, always. Well, no one's ever ready for it, though, right, too, I think, and that's, like, so important to have that conversation. And I think, like, again, as I've said many times on the podcast, and I think we said this before, like, no one talks about death, right? Like, and so, like... Yeah, with our no culture, one, we don't talk no. about it, so then when it starts happening, everybody freaks out. Yeah. So you have that freak out, so you have 
this happens. Right? So I, you go through this. Well, I was like, I had this conversation with my mom where I was telling her, and this is what my mom was saying, that basically, or this is what I should say we came to agreement on, mm-hmm. that it's basically like like how I kept talking about how the sun rises and sets. Mm-hmm. If you were to be, each of us is a sun, and if we were to deny, we all, we are so aware of the fact that the sun is going to rise. We celebrate new births every day, and but it's so crazy because if if the sun rises, it has to set, <laughs> and so if we're going to deny the fact that the sun is going to set, as the sun eventually starts setting. We're going to completely lose our minds and get overwhelmed in anxiety and stress and desperation as soon as it starts. Like with each second that it gets darker and darker, we're just going to get overwhelmed. And But if we were already to accept the fact that the sun is someday going to set or at some time going to set, when it starts setting, we're going to be excited because we know, like we were talking about how my mom said she, it was the fall of her life all those vibrant bright colors think about sunsets how powerful that is we love sunsets sunsets are amazing so my mom has been in the sunset of her life and it's so crazy that we deny it because you deny it you're going to miss out on all those colors and even after the sun sets then there's that next glow that happens right after the sun sets it's like so crazy it's like dark and then like boom a little bit of light and so you'd also miss out on that not to mention the fact that it doesn't matter how dark this light this this night is it's the sun's going to rise the next day so if if you look at let's say a map of the world if the sun is setting in one part of the world it's rising in the next i was like you cannot stop the cycle so whatever it is you think happens or doesn't happen in this next life the point is some new chapter is starting and and that's amazing. And that's oh, a beautiful powerful. that's it's, a beautiful process. That's so powerful because as I've said, the sun always rises the next day, no matter where you are. So your mom passes, mm-hmm. you come back. Now we talk about not being alone. You come back, you run the marathon in eighteen, mm-hmm. you bring your sister, you inspire another runner, and then I wanna jump here to post marathon. Oh yeah. Is, wow, I forgot all about this. Yeah. So you run the marathon <laughs> with your hobble, sister. More like a hobble. And I, I will say um I've never been at the finish line and for 18, uh, we made an effort. We were down there. We'll probably release our video at some point um Working before this podcast of you crossing the finish line and just 11 the inspiration, and a half hours later. <laughs> which is just amazing to see that happen and just Having following you at the finish line. Since my mom kept saying that she was going to be at the finish line. She was. I felt her there, and she you was. being there, I just felt like my mom made it all happen. Well, thank you. No, um, that, that's me thanking you. <laughs> well, thank you for that. <laughs> so, post marathon, then mm-hmm. you decide, and we talked before we started recording. Before your mom had gotten sick, you had made a decision that you were going to do something to better your life. Mm-hmm. That was recommended years ago, and then your mom got sick, and you kind of put that on the back burner to take care of mom. And then post marathon, you decided to do something that, which brings us up to speed here, which is to amputate your right leg below your kneecap. Mm-hmm. And so now you're rehabbing, as we've talked about that. Um, 
Something that I want to say that um, I know I've been a wallflower this whole conversation. <laughs> but no. um, as I was saying earlier, I was in a very bad place after my accident in the first couple of years after my accident. And I didn't love myself. I didn't love my life. Blamed my circumstances instead of my attitude for being the problem. If I had amputated my right leg originally when it was put on the table, I would have, I mean, I was already planning on ending my life at some point anyways, but the emotions and everything that goes into a surgery like this, I don't think I would have recovered. I would, I know for a fact I would have blamed because I know how my mentality was. I would have blamed every single little thing under the sun, including the people responsible for my injuries, for stealing my leg from me. And I would have felt like they had stolen my mobility. I would have just, like, that type of, like I said, I was trapped in this victim mentality and blaming everybody. But this is the circle. Yes. Like, you think about, like, just this whole, and, and I... I and I'm not picking on you or beating you up here about the circle and all these experiences, but this is life, right? And life throws things at you at any time. And some of us are blessed to not have death. You know, no, until, everybody is going to have death. Yeah. Well, only way you want, the only way you avoid <laughs> it is by not being close to people. But True. No matter but what, so you're you gonna die. have your own death. Yeah, you die. But so, like, some people I know, I know friends like you know their parents don't die until they're like 95, and they don't experience cancer. Or, you know, they don't have heart attacks; they just die natural causes, which is you know great. Um, which is great. You know, it's great for them, right? Like, yeah. but eventually they do deal with death, right? Or they don't. But so life has a series of things that will knock you down. And I think it's kind of a full circle. And I, I think, and I don't mean to speak for you here, Amanda, but it's almost a testament like you ex you you had to accept that before you could move on and get to that next level, right? So it takes time. And like we were talking just before we started to record here about the healing process with this latest challenge <laughs> um, that, you know, has been presented and, you know, something you knew and, but like, it takes time to heal. So, you know, it's it just, I think that's something that's so powerful though, that it's just so fascinating. I mean, you've had some incredible challenges in front of you and how you've been able to battle. But if we were to maybe like do a timeline, I mean, all these things have happened, have prepared you for that next thing. And this is something, you know, losing a limb, you know, by, whether it's by choice, well, this wasn't really your it choice. It wasn't a choice. I mean, I mean, I could have chosen not to do it and have it end up losing my knee and above my leg, and right. then who knows where it would have gone from there. When I say it was a choice, I chose the date. Yeah. I chose the doctor. That was in my hands. Before, it would have just been done, and I had no choice, and I felt like I had no control over anything. Whereas in this situation, I felt like... Like I said, I was the one in control. So I started doing this mental imagery that I've done for two different people since I had my surgery in January. Basically, I imagined, sort of like I was talking about how I imagined that my soul was a capsule, I imagined that my whole lower limb was a capsule. And I imagined that same capsule in my soul. 
So what I would do, I I've been doing this since the summer. So after my mom died, right around Easter, um, I went into summertime and I, I definitely, so this last summer, I started getting depressed. I was like, oh man. And I knew this surgery, this was my first time in my adult life where I'm not taking care of anybody. It was Other such than a, yourself. Yeah, it was such a weird feeling. So I was like, oh, I'm supposed to be taking care of myself. <laughs> I've never taken care of myself. I'm always so worried about everybody else. So, you know, moving. But you had your mom take care of you, and you saw that and modeled, right? Because mm -hmm. then you took care of her, mm -hmm. which then now probably allows you to take care it of you. It taught me everything, the lessons I need to know for taking yeah. care of myself. And it's crazy because all these things that I didn't even know that I remembered um, that my mom told me and my mom did for me when I was having my original recovery um, from my accident, all came right out in the front. And so over the summer, I started getting really depressed and I started doing double sessions of therapy, not like physical therapy, but no, real but therapy. Real therapy, yeah. Well, I needed it. Communicating therapy, let's yeah, say. Yeah, soul so therapy. It's all, yeah, it's real. Soul and mind. I needed to because I knew this surgery was imminent. I didn't know exactly when. I didn't know the severity of my... I didn't know it was an urgent situation yet. But I did know that it was going to happen, and I knew that no matter what, I needed to move forward in my life, and I knew that the last couple years have hit me with a bunch of different blows, and it was up to me to work through it to be able to move forward. I was like, this is something. I've been seeing my mom every single day for the last couple years. Um, I, if I'm feeling like I don't even want to get out of bed and I'm feeling like I don't even care if I shower today and just kind of just like, whatever, I'm, I'm starting to isolate myself. It's like, okay, <laughs> you need to, to take control right here. Cause this is going to go, I already know in the past what happened to me after my accident, I certainly don't want to put myself at risk again. And it would be reckless for me to do that. Cause I have control over that. And so not only was I training for the marathon, but I was doing these double sessions of therapy and the combination, it felt like I just stripped my soul of everything that was weighing me down over the last couple of years. And I started feeling really empowered again when I went into the fall. So when, I think it was probably October, I went to the doctor and, he told me that my leg was dead below the knee and it was a combination. Of, well, I have something called CRPS, which is complex regional pain syndrome. But apart from that, it was a combination of my circulation and my nerve damage. So my first thought was, wow, I did so many things to try to save my leg. You know, I thought I could save it. And my first initial thought was like, oh, I wasted all this time trying to save something I'm just going to get rid of anyways. And it was like a flash of just like all this, all these negative thoughts. And then I realized, no, this is amazing because I wasn't ready to say goodbye. Just like with my mom, I had two and a half years of extra time with my mom. I had all this extra time on my leg. And how hard is it going to be for me to say goodbye to this chunk of flesh? I've already said goodbye to my mom. I already know for a fact, because I watched her take her last breath, that we are a soul trapped in a body. So this is this is not connected to me. And I know for a fact, each part of my journey is 
It's like if you're playing a video game and you're like accumulating all these different to tools for later for fighting a dragon or something. Um, for whatever reason, I have to say goodbye to this. Big deal. So what? I'm going to say goodbye. If I make a big... No, I have no choice over it. So I just knew I need to be positive. And I need to... This is, again, it was like an is... All these things are instantaneously in my head. Like, all right. Um, this is your choice right now. Um, you squeezed in years. How many awesome adventures did I have with this thing? <laughs> I was like... All, miles. Yeah. How many miles? Like... It's I like felt running like, on a uh, on a flat tire. And oh my were god! Able to get like the no flat tire for like how many years? Yeah, exactly. And not to mention the fact that when I'm training, it's like my leg is like just this <laughs> well, dangling, dangling, curled in yeah, thing that's like it, yeah, catching how... on things and tripping me. And one of the I was actually ready because mm, it was probably September, August. I started moving around different things because I was getting things from my mom's house because mm. we were putting it on the market and bringing it here. And so I was trying to like move things around. I tripped so many times carrying things of my mom and that, my, that were my mom's and fallen and broken them because of my leg. So in the, the final time was actually in, the, in December, a couple of days before my surgery, I fell and landed on this box of things and crushed so many of the things that were my mom's. And I was just laying in the kitchen on the floor, just hysterically crying. And I'm just like, I keep breaking all these things. Because you're like, it's because of my leg. I was like, I can't carry anything with my crutches, this leg. And then, so I was like, you know what? I'm like, no, all right. Maybe I would have hold, held on to these little random trinkets. I still have them on, don't worry. I threw out a few. I was like, I can carry these lilies back together. It's just like me. It's just a little broken, but it's okay. <laughs> it's like, but anyways, so the point is that, yes, I found out that my leg was dead below the knee. So I started doing this mental imagery that I did. I did a little bit over the summer, but I went hardcore when I got this news. So basically... I imagined that this capsule was attached to my lower leg by chains. And I started going through first the last couple years, just on my mom's diagnosis and her fight, everything that um, that weighed me down. First, I would literally just lay it out in my mind. It was like right in front of me. And I would take bits and pieces. So I'd take the pieces that were weighing me down and crush my soul memories of you know different things that you know you feel when someone passes away you start feeling guilty about like oh i may have looked at her wrong and maybe she was upset like <laughs> august 10th 2016 like who knows i just taking everything and just throwing it into this capsule and then the beauty of laying everything out in front of me in my mental imagery i could take the pieces that were positive lessons Literally just going through any day I remember and I would take positive things that my mom said that she did that happened and I would put it into the capsule in my soul. So I was separating them. I did it for every situation, first for my mom's diagnosis and then I went back further. And then I just, I started going through my whole life. And even something as simple as if you see a friend recommendation on Facebook and your instant feeling is like, ugh, <laughs> you may have not heard of this person in 15 years. But I'm like, how is that person? That person's holding some type of power somehow. I don't even know what happens. So I'm like, eh, throwing that in the capsule below my knee. Just throwing everything in there and all the good into my soul. So that when I went in for my surgery, the whole last night, 
I didn't sleep at all. I just did just nonstop mental imagery, mental imagery. I felt God and my mom with me. I know. Sorry, guys. I'm sounding like a holy roller, but I'm really not. I felt safe. I felt like everything was going to be fine. And I imagined that the doctor was going to cut the chains. So when I woke up, the chains were cut. The chains were gone. Everything for my entire, it was just gone. I felt, I have not felt this complete and happy. Like this is like a true oozing through my pores, happiness for my life, gratitude for every single blessing. It's like I have all the goodness in my soul. Everything that was laying me down, including my leg, are gone. It's like, what the heck just happened? This is amazing. <laughs> so it's so crazy. It's like, to everybody else, my le- like I look like a maim. And meanwhile, I'm like, I've never felt better. Just to come full circle, Amanda, yeah. it's amazing. You know, we talked about this evolution and these circles and how you have you work with kids that are in tragic situations in terrible countries. You come home, you have these tragic events, first with you, then with your mom, and then now coming whole and losing a limb and letting go and, and liberating how that is. I know we talked about inspiration, but I've taken so many notes here and I've got to say, you said flicker of light, light and fire, but... Um, I think that fire is now a cauldron. Forget the candle. And I think it's going to be amazing to see what this next journey is for you. So from all of us at Project Purple, I can't thank you enough for what you've done for the disease and just sharing your family's experience and what you've been able to do to inspire people with your running with us in the New York City Marathon. And I know we kidded when I texted you when I saw that you had done what you've done. And I said, well, we can't wait to run together. So it's still out there. So oh my gosh, I'm, I'm definitely to run with I am you. definitely gonna run with you, number one. Number two, what I want to leave with is that I feel like at any given point we have the power to say, No, this is not how my story is gonna end. It doesn't matter what people tell you or how they tell you it's gonna end. You have the power to leave your legacy and to define yourself however you want. My mom did not want pancreatic cancer to define her. And the fact that she said that it's like being at a living wake, I carry that with me because it was beautiful watching her soul healed by the cancer. It would have not happened otherwise. My mom, if she was gonna pass away, when she was gonna pass away March 20th, 2018, she could have passed away going off to wherever she's going to go off to, feeling like she's unloved for whatever reason. I mean, there was so much love around her, but for whatever reason, she wasn't feeling it. So I am so grateful to God for pancreatic cancer because the exact way that it rallied people around my mom, any other way, it would not have happened. Honestly, any other cancer, I don't know if it would have happened. Um, Not to mention, my mom's favorite color was purple. (laughs) And... One of the things that she really wanted to do through her journey, which is why she was grateful for my social media pages, was she wanted people to see her story. And she thought maybe if someone who didn't know anything about pancreatic cancer saw her and saw how much life she had to live, maybe they would want to fight and join an organization like Project Purple to make sure that somebody like my mom has a chance 
to live a little longer or to live a little better. I just want to thank you, Amanda, for allowing us to share with our audience the story of your journey. And this really has been a pretty special journey um, through, you know, the, the trials and tribulations of having two tragic accidents and being told you'll never walk again to helping your mom battle pancreatic cancer when everyone told her, you know, just to go home and get your fears in order. And she defied those odds to now, you know, amputating your leg. And I look forward to seeing this journey. So uh, thank you for allowing us to share your story and your mom's story. It's been truly an honor. Thank you for having me. Um, I would like to say one of my mom's favorite quotes which is, may I never miss a rainbow or a sunset because I was looking down. And to everybody out there, I know it's really easy when things get tough and um, when you feel like all the odds are stacked against you, to look down and start getting stressed and feel sorry for yourself. But when you keep your head up, there's so much beauty out there. And it doesn't matter if you have one day or 10 years. Mm -hmm.